Welcome back to Graduate Gabble. I am Emer O'Connor and in this episode I am joined by Professor Debbie Lyle from the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics. Thank you for joining us Debbie. Could you please tell us a bit about yourself and your experience supervising PhD students? Hi Emer. I have been at Queen's for 20 years and in that time I have supervised I think 14 PhD students, maybe more than that. And that's a mixture of both primary supervision and some secondary supervision. One of the things that I do maybe a bit differently than some others is a lot of my supervisions are interdisciplinary. So they're based in HAP or some of the groups within HAP, but also I have supervised with people in English, people in film, people in French studies, people in sociology. So that makes it really, really interesting for me. My area of research and supervision, I guess, would be broadly international relations, but I also do a lot of work in terms of culture, travel, media, representation, and more recently I'm doing work on technology and borders. So that's me. That is a vast range of experience you have collected over these 20 years. How would you describe your experience of being a supervisor in three words? Thanks, Emer. Academics are never brief uh, at all. So three words is very difficult. The first thing I would say is that it's been a real learning curve for me in terms of figuring out how to supervise well. I think when I started, I had that youthful hubris where I thought I knew everything and I was embracing the status of my position, but it's very clear to me now that that's not true. So I've learned a lot over the 20 years in terms of how little I know about supervising. The second thing I would say is what I have learned is that each PhD project requires a really personal relationship between the supervisor and the student. That's what makes the strongest PhD projects, but it's also moments of vulnerability in there as well. But I do think that the stronger the relationship between the supervisor and the student, the better the PhD will be. And then I guess thirdly, I would say, so I've heard this directly from my students, I am very, very hard on them <laughs> and I expect a great deal from them. So they are teaching me to be nicer. <laughs> well, it certainly sounds like you've learned a lot about yourself and about the different types of student-supervisor relationships. Debbie, what makes a PhD application stand out? For me, the single thing that makes it stand out is an independent voice. So somebody who is assured and confident about what they're doing, but the positions themselves within a sort of set of literatures or arguments, but really a strong independent voice. A good PhD application has to be focused. I've seen so many that have, you know, gone on these massive tangents. That's not helpful. And so clarity is really important. So you have to be clear and sort of sequential in what you're doing. I'm going to do this for this reason, and here's how I'm going to do it. Lately, I would say the best applications I've seen are ones that take a kind of, I would call it an exploratory approach. So they don't present a PhD project as if they've already solved the problem they're asking. They frame it in the way that I want to explore these things for this particular reason. So a kind of ambitious exploration is to me what makes a really good PhD application and one that's expressed in a really clear, independent voice. Thank you, Debbie. Following from that, what sort of skills or qualities would you expect an incoming PhD student in your discipline to have? I think for incoming PhD students, one of the big 
skills they need is self-motivation. So they need to be able to get themselves up in the morning and get into the project without anybody telling them what to do and when to do it. And I know that's true of all levels of university life, but it's especially true of PhD projects. I would also say along with self-motivation, I really appreciate students who are able to engage in critical thinking. So they're able to have an independent view of a set of literatures or a debate or a question. And that links to another skill, which I see as kind of self-reflexivity. So they're able to understand their own strengths and weaknesses as a scholar. Now that's something that's a lifelong lesson to learn. Like I'm still learning all of those things as well, but some sense of the kind of researcher you are, what you're good at, what parts of the research process you enjoy the most. For example, some people really enjoy the writing. Some people hate the writing. Some people love the early parts where you're mapping it out and you're being really creative. Some people hate that. And some people love revision and some people hate it. So it's reflecting on yourself and your practical working habits. Like what do you find easy? What do you find difficult? And what you think you're good at? And then also what you think you're not so good at and therefore where you need to ask for help. So it's that sort of confidence, I think. But really the key, Emer, is self-motivation for sure. That's great, Debbie. This really echoes some of what our previous postgraduate guest speakers have said on this podcast, specifically that need to remain self-motivated and to manage your own time effectively and just keep in mind why you're doing what you're doing. And then, of course, critical thinking is expected at postgraduate level. And it's really about having that confidence to get involved in the academic debate and bring in your own academic voice. And of course, because we're all constantly learning I really like that idea of keeping an eye on where our strengths are and where we need to improve and then finding those resources to support and improve your skills and development. How can a student best prepare themselves for that transition into a PhD? It's quite simple, actually. If you're going to do a PhD, you can't be half-assed about it. Like you have to be committed to the project. And I think that commitment is what it leads to self-motivation. If you're not committed to doing it, then there's no point because you're going to need that commitment. You really are when on those really terrible days when you wake up and you're like, I am stupid today and I can't write anything. <laughs> you're going to really need to have a passion for what you're doing, a commitment to the project and some idea about why it matters. And if you don't have that, I would say try to think about doing something else because a PhD requires that commitment. Yes, I mean, if you're going to spend at least three years of your life immersed in a specific topic, you're going to want to be interested in that topic and be committed to that topic and just have some passion for that specific area. So, Debbie, what aspects of transitioning into a PhD can students find challenging? I think the main challenge for most PhD students is that they are in charge of this project. Like they are driving the bus. Some students embrace that and sometimes they go too far and you're like, no, come back. I actually have some things to say to you. But a majority of PhD students find that transition tough because they are the ones that are designing the project. They're putting it together. They make the decisions on what to do and what not to do. And that can be really hard for students who have, for example, in their earlier degrees, their bachelor's degrees or their master's degrees, where they're used to a much more rigid set of instructions or a more didactic form of teaching where people tell you what to do and you do it and you do it well. 
Whereas in a PhD, there's nobody telling you what to do. We as supervisors are there to facilitate a scholar developing their own project. And so I think that transition can be really challenging. And again, people get better at it the more they do it. Thanks, Debbie. I can see a theme of continuous improvement emerging in our discussions here. And actually, this leads us nicely to my next question. How would you expect a PhD student's skills to develop during the PhD journey? Yeah, I think your point about confidence is like central, right? And that's, again, another lifelong lesson. We build our confidence as we do our work, right? As we get better at it. And that's where imposter syndrome comes in. I'm afraid to say we still have it when we get old, <laughs> we still have that sometimes, but it's really important for me. Confidence building is also about surrounding yourself with people who support you and creating solidarity with others in your position. So one of the things that happens in grad school is you get this strange combination in PhD students and myself included between a kind of strange, almost an arrogance that they've gotten this far. Like they've been selected as the PhD student. You know, so they're smarter than a lot of other people, but at the same time, there's this kind of radical insecurity as well. And that can manifest itself in very like competitive expressions, for example, between each other. And there's no space for that for me, for PhD students. You really want to be supporting each other and helping each other to build confidence in your work, in where you want to go in your career, et cetera. So I would say something around surrounding yourself with people that support you, people that give you strength and people that build your confidence. That would be one thing I would say in terms of how you would develop that in your studies over the course of your PhD. I'd also want to say that in every PhD that I have experienced, every single one, including my own, every PhD student has a crisis. And that crisis comes at different times. Sometimes people have it when they start their PhD and they're like, I don't know what I want to do, or I thought I was going to do A and now I want to do B, C and D and E and X, Y, Z. And sometimes it comes in the middle, maybe when they're doing field work. And sometimes it comes at the very end, but every single one, you have a crisis of confidence. You have a crisis of, I don't know what I'm doing. You have a crisis of like, what is this actually about? As supervisors, it's our job to attend to those crises and honor them and take care of them because they're really hard when students go through them. I remember mine, but it, it's, everyone has it. And it's really just about putting some structures around yourself, some support structures and reaching out when you need to, you will get over the crisis. But it's to know that it will happen and that's okay. That's totally normal. Everybody has them. And it's about how to manage that and kind of get through it intact so that you can pursue and get to the end of your PhD. So those are sort of, I guess, I don't like the word resilience for lots of reasons, but some people will talk about that, but it's more about confidence building and, and weathering the storms, I guess. I am so glad you have raised this topic, Debbie, because this is something that I wish I had known before I started my PhD. I wish I had known that there are potential crises on the horizon and that's okay. The moment you said the word crisis, I had a flashback to my own. And I remember initially feeling so overwhelmed at the time. I just wanted to run away from the PhD altogether. And I guess maybe it's because you spend so much time in your own head while you're doing a PhD that you forget there's a wider world out there. I remember trying to speak to friends and family, but they just didn't seem to understand. So I went and I spoke with my peers in Queens and it was great having a group to talk to that have been through some of the same experiences as you, where you could bounce ideas off them and say, you know, is this normal? What can I do about this? Where is their support? So I find that really, really helpful. 
And then having a supervisor who I'm sure has seen many crises every year and has managed to deal with them. So just even being aware at the time that there's a potential crisis and being able to speak to the appropriate people about it can really alleviate that sense of being overwhelmed by the whole thing. Reflecting back as well on the skills that students develop in their studies, one of the things people don't tell you about PhDs is they can be quite lonely. And as you said, nobody really understands what you're doing unless they've done a PhD. So you're talking to your aunt or your parents or your friends who don't work in academia and they're, you're trying to explain what you do and they're like, what? Like, that's weird or I don't understand it or what's the point? <laughs> and you have to be able to answer that and believe in it, but it can be really lonely. So again, I wanted to go back to that point about putting support structures around yourself. And also it's really important to have things to do to take care of yourself that have nothing to do with your PhD. So you can like play football or watch box sets or go for walks or take up knitting, do something, do absolutely something that takes your brain away from your PhD. That's one thing I've learned, especially recently with some students, but that that is what carries you because you need some time off from this all encompassing project. So I would say find a hobby, find something that helps you to take care of yourself and understand that it's going to be challenging, but you are in charge of this project. You are driving the bus. Thank you for that invaluable insight, Debbie. I think it is so helpful for students to know what to expect across the PhD journey, just so that they can best prepare themselves and have that support system in place and have those activities that they can go and engage with when they want to switch off from the PhD. You've highlighted a lot of ways that students can support themselves during their PhD. Are there any other types of support that students find useful in your experience? I've talked a little bit about the sort of pastoral aspect of it. So help from your supervisor, help from the people around you, help from your friends and your colleagues, especially in your peers. But I think the university also has a lot of resources that PhD students don't really think about in terms of, for example, their career, like making that decision, do I want to go into academia or do I not want to go into academia? And what are the different ways that that can happen? What trajectory do I have out of this PhD? I also think there's some pretty clear structural supports that PhD students need. So one of them is funding. And I know Queens is working really hard on that, especially for international students. Things like a good workspace. I know these sound simple, but they're actually really important. And then I would say thirdly, in terms of the institution, there are a lot of opportunities, for example, in the graduate school for PhD students to do things like learn about leadership or take different courses for professionalizing themselves. And I think those opportunities, they certainly weren't there when I did my PhD, but that's one of the changes I've noticed that's really, really helpful for students who are really, really involved in a singular project, but they also have to kind of telescope out of that and think about, well, what am I going to do when I become an adult? What am I going to do with my life? What kind of career do I want to build? And that also has to do with the changing nature of higher education as well. And so it's important for supervisors to also talk to their students about like the job market and academia and what they could do or what might be a really helpful trajectory out of the PhD. And I think that landscape is changing a lot. So it's quite important that supervisors keep abreast of how all of that is going. It's not, <laughs> it's not sometimes a nice conversation to have because the job market is not super, 
but it's a really important one to have with your PhD students. Thank you. I love how you've reflected that there are so many different outcomes from your PhD and it can lead you to so many different avenues. It's really important that students realize the transferability of their skills as well. And it's interesting that you mentioned the leadership programs in the graduate school, because on our previous podcast, some of our students have spoken about undertaking those programs and how they've actually been able to implement the skills that they've learned on those programs, both within their studies and within the working environment as well. Let's move on now and talk about your own experience of this student supervisor relationship. You mentioned at the start how important it is to have a good, solid relationship with your students. So how would you describe your experience of this student supervisor relationship? I think what I've learned in my time supervising PhD students is that each relationship is unique. I think of it as a friendship, actually. And when I started supervising, I didn't think of it like that. I thought there was like a one model that fit everybody, right? So my, the students would come in and I'd be like, this is what you have to do. And this is the order you have to do it in. And when they didn't adhere to that, things got difficult. And actually that was my shortcoming, not the student's shortcoming. So what I've tried to do with my PhD students more recently is just to attune myself to them in a clearer way to see what it is that they want out of the PhD and to kind of create a, a working relationship with them where I'm enabling them, I'm facilitating them to produce the kind of project that they want to. So I would say I would have been much more authoritarian, I guess, at the start and not as flexible, whereas now, I, well, I hope, <laughs> I hope that I've learned to be a little bit more attuned to the type of students that are in front of me. And instead of trying to get them to fit some kind of singular box that everybody has to fit of the, the PhD student, there isn't one type of PhD student. And that's been a really important lesson for me to learn, a hard lesson, but a really important one. It's certainly reassuring to hear that there's no one generic type of student-supervisor relationship. So Debbie, what sort of insights have you gained while supervising? I'm still friends with a number of PhD students that I supervised who've now gone on uh, to different things. And it's very uh, interesting and hilarious and fun and humbling when I talk to them now and they reflect back on their time working with me and they're now confident enough to tell me what they really think, which is really good. Actually, it's important to hear that feedback. So what I've learned, which is fed into this kind of like, oh, I have to change my practice. I think I have to become more attuned to the students in front of me is that apparently I'm notorious for being way too critical of my students <laughs> and terrifying. So those are moments that I need to probably reflect on, but that's come from students who I've worked with over the years and now I consider friends. So it's good to have critical friends, I think. <laughs> yes, I guess having critical friends can help us certainly with our self-reflection and continuous improvement. So Debbie, it sounds like you have had so many really interesting experiences and insights as a supervisor. Are there any memorable experiences that you would like to share with us? I think my own PhD experience, which feels like 200 years ago, one of the things that really helped me was I was treated almost like a member of staff. I was a graduate teaching assistant, which was a kind of an official post, but it really made me feel like my views were valued and respected in the department I was in. So that was really helpful that I wasn't considered sort of a junior member. I was actually considered a valuable member of staff. I think that's really important for PhD students to feel like they're contributing as well to the scholarly process. I have a lot of favorite moments with PhD students. 
One of them is when a student surprises you where they're struggling with something or they've been trying to draft a chapter and it hasn't really worked or they, they haven't figured something out. It's not going well and everybody's kind of irritated and then they go away and something happens and they produce work. They come back to you and they produce work and it's amazing and it's genuinely surprising. I love those moments. The whole project then becomes energized and the student gains a confidence. It's really great to see that. And then I would say the other moment that is my favorite, and it does happen with sort of 95% of PhD projects, is the moment where the penny drops and the student realizes what it is that they're actually doing. And again, that can happen really early, but it can also happen really late where they stumble upon in their own words, they stumble upon the actual heart of the project and you can see it like their face lights up. You can see them working out for themselves. This is what I'm doing. This is what I've been working towards. And again, that really energizes a project. So I guess it's those moments of surprise and, and seeing a student right before your very eyes kind of come into themselves. There's nothing that can replace those moments for me. I have had some of those Eureka moments myself, and I have seen others have some of those moments as well. And, you know, it's really nice to have a supervisor to share these moments with, because it's somebody else who's really invested in your research area, somebody who understands how important that is for you. And also somebody who gives you that space to navigate the field and come to your own conclusions and support you that way. So Debbie, where have some of your students ended up? I've had a number of PhD students who have gone into academia. So PhD students of mine have ended up in Portsmouth, St. Andrews, at Massey University in New Zealand, in Italy. Some have ended up working in like public affairs, uh, working for NGOs uh, in peace building, for example. And then because I have done a lot of interdisciplinary PhDs, I was supervising in a primary or a secondary role. One of my PhD students is a documentary filmmaker, so she's making professional films. And the other who I'm working with at the moment is a visual artist. She's already established as a visual artist, but she's come back in to do PhD on memorials and commemoration in Northern Ireland. So she's sort of working in that field as well. So again, you can sort of see this landscape where I would say even 20 years ago, when I started at Queen's, there was this sense that you had one trajectory out of the PhD, and that's not the case anymore for many, many reasons. But I think, again, it's really worth students understanding that there's multiple trajectories out of a PhD. No one can ever take a PhD away from you, right? Once you do a PhD, you always have done a PhD. It's never going to not benefit you. Knowledge will never kind of make you worse. It will always make you better. So I think it's important to say to students that there, there are multiple trajectories. Academia is one of them, and it's the most conventional one that we're familiar with, but there's all kinds of things that you can do with a PhD. I couldn't agree more. And within the graduate school, we encourage students to have a few different career paths in mind as they are working towards obtaining their PhD. So Debbie, all that's left now is for me to thank you for coming along to speak with us. Our conversation has brought back some memories for me about my own PhD journey. And I think current and incoming PhD students will really benefit from your insight and from your suggestions about how to prepare and best support yourself during your studies. As always, we would like for this discussion to continue beyond this podcast. So if you would like to share your thoughts, please do so on Twitter using at QUB Grad School.